Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither while they pass, they slip away across the universe. Pools of sorrow, waves of joy are drifting through my open mind, possessing and caressing me. Consciousness in many forms, including that which is not conscious, that we call sleep, where time is forgotten. If remembered for its moments, it is the remembrance we call dreams, and these seep back into that forgetfulness like water into sand, and so often disappear. If we remember anything, it is remembrance of the remembrance. There are also the simultaneity of consciousness of which we are aware, the many moving parts of ourselves, sensations, perceptions, within, without. And finally, the engineer, the pilot to the motion, attending to the machinery of it, the signals demanding decision and coordination, our actor. The actor is our presence of mind, at least that is the billing he gets. If he is incoherent, then so am I. If out of his mind, then so am I. But what is mind? What is the presence of mind? A will? Not merely. Coherent thought? Not always. Logic? Language? Not always. Although it is difficult to distinguish mind from thought in words, since thought in words is how we understand our mind. But all of us know that words seem to drape like cloth, the form of what we mean, to give appearance to what lies beneath, and thus some words with more elegance and charm than others. We like nice clothes. But we are also naked. Music is naked thought thought without words. The athlete thinks naked, when doing is thought. The artist thinks naked, when what is created and the creator melds, the creation is thought. At any rate, we can sense the way in which thought with words is both artificial and artful. It is not quite the real but it is a semblance, a verisimilitude, and in itself is highly attractive, colorful, and often so beautiful it can be evocative of that ineffable consciousness. It can indeed seem to be so exact to the truth that we mistake it for what is real. But what if there is more than one actor here? What if I am a whole stage full of actors? 
what if there are not just representations of me from different times of my life, but roles that I have not played, except subconsciously, or maybe roles that I have never played? What if I can be anyone I have ever met or anyone I can imagine? And what if these actors play? What if I am that drama? Images of broken light which dance before me like a million eyes They call me on and on across the universe Thoughts meander like a restless wind inside a letter box They stumble blindly as they make their way across the Banner, Black River Falls, Wisconsin, 11 June 1900. L.C. Whitsan, four years old, child of Henry Whitsan, died at Nina of grief. Her mother died a few days before, and from then until her death, the child cried without stopping. Physicians say the death was caused by a broken heart. The Bird-Headed Woman On an isolated farm near the Black River lived a farmer and his wife who had recently given birth to a child. She quarreled with him because he raged at her in his religion, accusing her of wrongs she had not done to him. And so she left him and took her child to live in the woods where she had found a shack abandoned by loggers. Her husband, alienated by her, began to preach a profound and compelling gospel of sin and the everlasting hell due to sinners. And people from many farms and towns came around to listen to him. She could hear their clamor from the woods where she lived, like the sound of a train flying to a sudden halt in the wilderness, crashing its clashing cars seething with hissing steam. At night, through the trees, she could see the glaring lights of kerosene lamps moving like oral globules upon the lawn and on the porch of the house, where men and women gathered to listen to her husband. She went out in the night to listen, leaving her child in the shack, but feared that her child might cry, and so went back. The next night, she thought, I will bathe my child in warm water and swaddle him well, and put him in his cradle, and when he is asleep I will go. The child fell asleep. She left a kerosene lamp beside him and went to the farmhouse where the pilgrims had gathered. She joined them at the back of the crowd, 
She could not see her husband, but heard him preaching, and everyone was enthralled. They did not see her, and when the Holy Spirit overtook them, first one woman swayed, then a man jabbered and jigged, then many shouted and danced. She, too, began to dance and jabber. When the daylight began to filter the night, and the trees began to reappear beyond the stubble fields, a wind arose and chilled her, and she recalled, My child, he's crying. She ran through the woods and found her shack. She heard her child crying as she came to the shack, and she reproached herself for leaving it, and flung wide the door. The door was slammed shut by the wind. The kerosene lamp still lit the cradle, and she took her swaddled babe into her arms. But it was not her child. It was a bundle of sticks. It was not crying. It was the wind that shrilled at the mouth of the unfit door. The bird-headed woman had taken her child. She took it to her home where she lived with her brother, who was also her son, who looked like a crane because of his long, skinny, bony legs and his long, skinny, bony arms and long, skinny, bony fingers and long nose and long, skinny neck. And so she called him Crane. And he spoke with a voice that had several reeds in it and sounded like a harsh harmonica. The boy grew up with them. The bird-headed woman was large and carried the boy on her back, who clutched her feathered neck as he rode, who sometimes nuzzled it, and her neck smelt of a warm bed and woods at the same time. Crane did not like the boy, and the boy did not know why. Sometimes he heard the two of them talk about his inexplicable animosity at night, when they thought he was asleep. He did not understand what Crane was saying to her, or what she replied. The boy grew each day, as days also grow to seasons, and seasons grow to years. The boy grew like the trees in their seasons, year upon year, to be larger and larger, taller and taller. He obtained the body of a young man, by his turning of the seasons and the years, though he did not know it, and no one told him. But eventually the boy was too large and heavy for the bird-headed woman to carry on her back easily, and one summer she stopped doing so. That summer it was very hot, and it had not rained for fifty-two days. The drought worried them all, but for the bird-headed woman, it seemed a matter of despair. On the morning of the fifty-third day, without rain, the bird-headed woman woke up very sullen, and she left the boy alone with Crane, something she had never done, and saying not a word to either of them. The boy called after her, but she did not turn to look at him, and trundled across the bleached meadow of parched mallows and rasping grasses. Crane, remaining with him, shook his head as she left, and it puzzled the boy, but he did not ask what it may mean. Crane said, 
Do not worry. I can feed you if she won't. The boy wondered, but Crane took quickly to the woods and returned in a short time with a trout for them to eat. They ate, and Crane said, Do you think she is your mother? The boy ate, looking at Crane intently. She's not, Crane said. The boy stopped eating and moved away from Crane to sit by himself. The bird-headed woman returned when the sky was purpled where the sun had fallen out of it. She saw the boy sitting alone, and she asked Crane, What did you do? You've made him sick. The next day she stayed with the boy, but the day following she left again, without a word. Again Crane fed the boy, and he warned him. You must kill her, or she will kill you. The boy wondered and listened. Crane said, You must go with her to where the white pines stand, many and huge, and there you must cut off her head at the neck. The boy did not reply. Crane continued, When you have cut off her head, a round thing will jump out. And you must kill that, too, or she will pick up her head, and then she will kill you. On the morning of the next day, the bird-headed woman did something she had not done for more than a year, since the boy had become almost a man. She bade him climb on her back and bore him for a ride into the forest. She and the boy did not speak. She carried him to a stand of white pines, many and huge, and went deeply into it so that they were surrounded by them, and only golden ground cover of their shed needles lay underfoot. It was a very quiet place. Only wind, high in the treetops, was intermittently heard. She squatted there so that the boy could step down, and she turned to look at him. Then, still not speaking, she turned slowly and surveyed and breathed deeply the aroma. When she turned to face him again, the boy saw how wild and black was the pith of her eye. He had not thought until this day to notice that her eyes were not human. She crouched so he could climb back on her back and returned with him to their home, where Crane, sitting outside, stood and ran to them like a dog, greeting his master. Crane lifted the boy from the bird-headed woman's back, and they all ate the trout that Crane had caught for dinner. That night, as they nestled where they were wont to sleep, Crane sidled to the boy, and whispering, hoarse and reedy, repeated, She means to kill you. If she takes you to the white vines again, kill her or be killed. He slipped a knife to the boy from out of his frayed sleeve. Kill or be killed, he repeated. The boy did not sleep that night, and when the morning lit, barely gray, and the birds arose, he saw the bird-headed woman stir and rise with her kin and go out to the woods among them. 
and he knew he had seen this many times. How often noted that she was not in bed when he awoke. But he had not thought it as he thought it then. When she came back, she caught his eye with hers, that black and wild pith of hers. She stood, staring as if she did not see in the interior gloom that he looked at her. But when she realized his stare, she quickly shifted her eyes and attended to the fire that had subsided to ash overnight. The boy put the knife in his belt, at his back, under his shirt. Again, the bird-headed woman bade the boy to climb his back without an explanation. Again, the boy climbed upon it and took hold of her neck as she stood to stride off into the woods. Crane rose from his sleep only then, apparently suddenly roused, and the boy looked over his shoulder at him as he stood at the threshold and watched them depart. Again, the bird-headed woman took the boy into the stand of the white pines, where they had come the day before, and did not stop until they were deep within it, surrounded by them, with only the golden carpet of shed needles underfoot, and where the only sound was wind high in the tops of the trees. Like a long breath, of someone sleeping. And the boy noted there were no sounds of birds anywhere, nor sounds of insects, nor sounds of other creatures. As she squatted for the boy to get off of her, he drew the knife from his belt behind her and swiftly and completely cut off her head. As her body fell forward, he leapt off behind her, and her head, completely severed, rolled to the side and turned up to stare upon him. He was so distracted by this that he did not see how a wet, round thing popped out of the neck of the body and began to bounce about like a rubber ball, squealing. But the round thing squealed, Kill me, kill me, just as the crane had said it would do. The boy chased the wet round thing as it bounced wildly about, and the body of the bird-headed woman began to crawl upon the ground seeking her head, which was soundlessly gasping or croaking, whose black eyes seemed to follow the boy as he chased the round thing in its wild course. Just as the bird-headed woman found her head, the boy caught the round thing, and remembering what the Crane had said, he squeezed it as hard as he could, as it shrieked and shrieked until it burst like a grape, and his hands and arms were splashed with a sticky black sap. He dropped the flaccid skin of the round thing to the ground. But as he looked sideways and saw that the bird-headed woman had now collapsed and was evidently dead, he felt his hands pulled, drawn down to the skin of the round thing, with the strands of the black sap reaching toward it like a webbing, and having hold of his hands and his arms clinging to them, this stringy, sticky liquid was returning to the original object and pulling him toward it. 
He resisted, but the force was more profound than falling. Yet just as if he were falling, he was drawn quickly and completely into the object on the ground and beyond that object, into the world, inside out. Once in the inside-out world, he emerged from an identical but opposite object on an identical but opposite ground, where he stood beside an identical but opposite corpse of the bird-headed woman. But his hands were free and were no longer wet with the liquid of that round thing, which thing, when looked for, could not be found. So suddenly had this event happened that the boy thought that nothing had happened at all. But then the boy realized he was completely naked. He had lost his knife and all his clothes. Everything else looked as it normally would look, except that he was faced left to right differently. The corpse that had been on his right is now on his left. And if the wind could be described as sounding inside out, he would say it sounded inside out. But this is very hard to describe and imagine. It just felt so. He decided to find his home. He decided to ask Crane who his mother was. But the further he went out of the woods, the more unusual everything looked to him. Perhaps, he thought, he had gone in the wrong direction confused by the inside-out world, by its opposite bearings. And yet, there was familiarity to what he saw, only small peculiarities that he did not recognize. The meadow looked right, but was a little strange. Maybe he was approaching it from the opposite direction, he thought. And a robin sang like a robin sings, but its song was backwards. Now he saw a town beyond the meadow, and he saw that the meadow had been tilled. It was not a meadow at all, but a field of low-lying vegetables, maybe squash, he thought. He saw people stooped and hoeing in the field. He approached one, a young woman with an apron across her skirt, and a sunbonnet that so deeply shaded her face he could not see into it, for the sun was behind her. But when he shielded his eyes, he could see her eyes were not addressing him as he spoke, but looked down at his penis, which he realized felt uncomfortable. And when she answered him, she spoke to his penis and knocked to him. And he himself looked at his penis and saw that it was changed. He did not understand what was happening to him. It worried him. The young woman pointed to a church in the village and talking to his erect penis, told him he should go there. He felt self-conscious about his penis as he walked naked into the town, and some people paid no attention to him, but those who did stared at his penis as he passed them. And for some reason, his feet were tender, and he could not walk the street normally, but had to watch carefully for gravel that hurt them. And this made him feel more awkward and uncomfortable still. He noticed that his erect penis waggled as he walked and he felt ashamed of it. 
He passed a storefront where people stared at him. He passed a house where children playing in the front yard stared at him. He came to the church and entered its steeple by a staircase and standing within the threshold beneath the bell tower. He peered inside uncertainly, for the sunlight had blinded him. He finally saw a full congregation of people in their pews that had turned to look at him, and at the end of the central aisle, between these rows of crowded pews, where should have stood an altar below a vibrant stained-glass window, there could be seen the top of a darkened threshold, which appeared to be like an entry to an unlit cellar. He asked the person nearest to him, Do you know my mother? But this person seemed blind and deaf and smiled and stared at some point just above his head, but did not answer him. He turned to the other side and asked another, Do you know my mother? But this person also seemed blind and deaf and smiled and stared at some point just above his head and did not answer. They all smiled and stared and did not answer him. All in the church smiled and stared at some point just above his head, blind and deaf, and did not answer. As he went down the aisle, the faces and smiles turned to follow him, and he saw that the image of the stained glass changed as he approached it, like the shifting pattern of a polychromatic kaleidoscope tumbling fragments of colored glass, yet ever revealing a binary symmetry of distinct and rational mirror images, one after another, each of which successive image he well identified at the time, but any one of which he could not later clearly recall. He saw a stairs below the stained-glass window, descending below it into a cellar of some kind whose floor, concrete, was illuminated by the light of the church, and on which his form cast his shadow. Some person from the congregation brushed by him and went down the stairs before him into the dark cellar. Then another person went. He said, where are you going? Three in a row failed to respond. Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? They kept going, emptying the pew from the back of the church to the front in soldierly manner. Then one said, smiling, We're going to get in the hair of the people. Then another said, We're going to get into the skin of the people. Then another said, we're going to get into the blood of the people. And then, one said, we're going to get into the brains of the people. Now then, one said, we're going to eat the hair of the people. Another said, we're going to eat the skin of the people. Another said, we're going to eat the blood of the people. And still another, we're going to eat the brains of the people. Now some people started coming back out of the cellar as the congregation filed into it. First came a man that looked like he recognized the boy and who said to him, Beware, my son, 
The man was bleeding from gunshot wounds. One in his belly, one in his back, and one that went through his cheek to the back of his neck. When he spoke, his mouth bubbled with lathery blood. But the boy understood him. The boy asked him, What happened? The man said, Did you see him? Who? The boy asked. But the man pushed past him anxiously and went against the throng of the church as it stood in file, descending to darkness. Then out of the cellar came a second man, carrying a rifle, who saw the boy and asked, Did you see him? Who? said the boy. The man with the rifle pushed his way through the throng of the congregation, and the boy turned and followed him. The boy followed the hunter as he hurried down the road heading out of the town, and where the road met a copse of ash and oak and forked, he saw the hunter bear to the right and followed him. The road was dry and dusty. Spots of blood, sometimes splash like paint in the dirt, glint like new coins here and there. The road was bounded on both sides by split-rail fencing, beyond which were cultivated fields, fields of corn and fields of pull beans, fields of squash and fields of potatoes. At intervals, sometimes to the right, sometimes to the left, the rails were gated and the fields divided and showed narrow, wheel-scarred, weedy tracks that worked back to some tree-shaded clapboard farmhouses, some with porches under the eaves of their front doors. Into one of these he saw the hunter turn, and he followed him. The hunter entered the house. It was a house that had been built and rebuilt as a farm family grew. The main room, through which he came by the main door, had been the first farmhouse, the house of a homesteading bachelor. To it the young husband had added a kitchen and a bedroom at the back for his bride. And to half of the hall he had raised the roof one time and added bedrooms for his children. But the boy found no family in the house. He also did not find the hunter, but supposed he had tracked the bleeding man out of the back of the house through the kitchen door. The boy looked in the bedroom of the first floor. He saw a brass bed and an oak dresser with a mirror top. He saw a chamber pot on the floor beneath the brass bed that had only a mattress on it and no blankets or sheets. The room smelled of stale urine and blue bottle flies were feeding and fornicating in and around the chamber pot and buzzing and bumping on the glass of the window to the backyard, where he saw the hunter climb and crest a hill and disappear from view. The boy caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror of the dresser at a cockeyed angle of view, not really knowing why he was doing it or what he was doing. He lay on the mattress, and while it creaked and clanked beneath him, he masturbated. When he ejaculated, he was surprised, but he felt an inexplicable release and pleasure. But at that same moment, a woman, a very pretty woman, 
with children's finger bones tied in her hair, came in and gestured at him and told him he was dirty, that he should wash herself off in her urine. He stood up and saw that his penis was normal again, and he went to look for the woman, and he heard her, or someone, up the stairs. But when he went to climb the stairs, someone hurled a dead, naked child down the stairs at him, a little girl, or so he supposed, since she had no penis but a cleft between her legs where a penis should have been. Her fingers had been cut off, her hands, but there was no bleeding on the stumps of them. Then down was rolled another dead, naked child, now a boy. Then another, another girl, naked as well, and both of these also had their fingers cut off. He left the house without pursuing her, and decided he had lost the hunter, and so returned to the road. At the next parting of the split-rail fencing, now on the opposite side of the road, he turned into the next farmhouse. He entered this house. It was very similar to the last one, but it had a wonderful smell about it that came from the kitchen at the back of the house. He found fresh baked bread there, on a table covered with a red and white checkered tablecloth. He found a basin of water in a sink under a water pump, and it had been sitting in a sunbeam which came through the window above the sink, and the water was warm. He splashed water on his body to wash himself, and he washed his face and hands and found a dish towel to dry himself. The pretty woman with bones in her hair appeared at the doorway to the main room, and it frightened him, and she stepped back into the main room, and he did not follow her. He heard objects falling down the stairs. He heard five objects this time. He did not want to look. He heard her talking from the top of the stairs. He sat down next to the kitchen table. The pretty woman talked from the top of the stairs. She told this tale. Many, many stars fell, and the seeds of stars flowered in the garden. Then the peddler came who sold blankets. The peddler sold me five blankets, but they were full of lice. My husband scolded me when he saw the lice in my children's hair. The peddler came again and sold me combs. I combed and combed and combed. My husband scolded me and said the peddler had cheated me. The peddler shat in the driveway. Then we could not leave home. My children got scabs on their eyes. My husband left. The peddler came and told me, quickly, woman, clean your house. And I did. Then he said, wash your children's eyes. And then they got better. But the peddler shat in the doorway, and we could not leave. The peddler took a firebrand from the fireplace, and he chased me, and struck me, and burned me. He left, and told all the townspeople what happened. Then the peddler came back, and he went from room to room, and he cut my children. He took out their intestines.
I looked at him, and the peddler caught fire, ran out to the yard with the hair of his head in flames. When she finished, the house was quiet. The boy was weary and wanted to go home. Now he did not care who his mother was, or if he would ever find his father. Unexpectedly, the pretty woman with children bones in her hair appeared at the threshold of the kitchen and looked at the boy and said, I gave you your name. You shall go into the water. I will go up. That is the end of my tale. I do not know what happened after that. Hey,